0: Welcome into the Wednesday Bible study. We are excited that you are here. We continue uh, to walk through the revelation. If you're joining us for the very first time, uh, we're going to find ourselves today in uh, the Revelation chapter 14, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Uh, Let you know what's going on. Uh, you've joined us uh, in progress. We walk through various books of the Bible. We have also walked through, you know, commentary that men have written that we trust, uh, various topics. On this uh, on this Bible study if you go to the archives and you can find those by going to the manchurchcom the manchurchcom is is how uh, you know this Bible study started uh, it was part of men getting together and and equipping ourselves and growing up spiritually in, in small group Bible studies uh, and uh, we even provide curriculum for you to implement in these small group Bible studies if you go to themanchurch.com, you'll find four of those uh, that are there, and there'll be more to come. We're work- already working on uh, putting together the fifth one. Uh, you also find individual resources uh, for you as as a man. Uh, you know, we have uh, a forty day devotionals. We have a, a new thirty one day devotional we just put out. Uh, and so you can find all that at themanchurch.com. But we also offer not just uh, the, the equipping. Now, that's the most important part because that's one part that's been missing from men's ministry. But we are involved in the challenge part, too. Men do need to be challenged. And and uh, it's called High Challenge, and, and we send our speakers and teachers out to events and, and Manchurch services. Uh, at churches all over the country. If you'd like to find out where those are coming uh, to you, you go to themanchurch.com and you'll see, uh, find a man church near you. A couple of those that are coming up this weekend on June the 25th, uh, two are going on. I'll be with one in Lake Mississippi. Uh, they're starting our men's discipleship strategy. So you'll come there, you'll hear about it. If you're a pastor, come find out what it's like, get some, get some information on how you can implement our strategy. Uh, and then if you're part of the church at First Baptist Church in Lake Mississippi, this is your kickoff. Uh, I'll be there to challenge you, and then we'll put you into our curriculum, and you can get into one of those small groups. Now, in Columbus, Mississippi, a church that's been with us uh, for a few years now, they're they're finishing their second 40-week curriculum, and this is their next man church, and new to the team is Tony Cooper. Uh, Tony will be there. He'll be speaking for them. He has, boy, he has been on the front lines, advancing the kingdom of God, uh, with with men down on their luck through a Christian mission where he has been for many years. He's now retired, uh, and he's working for us. So he'll be with you in First Baptist Church, Columbus, Mississippi, also this Sunday night on the 25th. Looking ahead, July 16th, I'll be in Montgomery, Alabama. Landmark Church is already doing the curriculum. This is their next man church, and and I'm honored to be there for that. Uh, On the 22nd of July, Andrew Varvudis goes to First Baptist Church Crestview Florida they're already in the curriculum and in our strategy and have been for a couple of years and then on the 28th of July Emmanuel Baptist Church in Crestview Florida also Crestview's getting serious uh, Blake Prime will be there. And uh, and then there's other things coming up. If you're in Austin, Texas, City Reach Church in Austin, Texas, I'll be there for their men's conference coming up uh, on August the 4th. So all that can be found and whatever else is out there by going to themanchurch.com. Just talked to a pastor Monday night, if you're kind of kicking the tires on our strategy, and he said, we have done the first curriculum for five weeks. Then Monday night they had their first man church. I was honored to be there. He said, with five weeks and one-man church, we've had ten men who have decided to follow Jesus. I've had three men ask for a a one-on-one with me to confess sin to me that is in their life. And then I've had one meeting with a wife who sat in front of me crying, saying, this has radically changed my husband. He's now taking on the spiritual leadership of our home. I can't believe the change. And he said, how in the world can this have happened so quick? And I said, I'll tell you how and God revealed this to me, and this is what the com is all about. If I were to go into China and I wanted to go in and reach Chinese people that only spoke Mandarin Chinese, well, there's two things that, that I could do. Uh, one of them is I could take an interpreter, and that would be somewhat effective. I mean, that, that's better than nothing. But what would be the most effective? And we see this even in Scripture in the, in the book of Acts, if I spoke their own language. If I could speak Mandarin Chinese, the way that I would impact them would then, of course, be so much more effective. And what's happened with the Western church for far too long is you and we don't speak the language of men. We speak the language of women and we speak the language of children. And that's why even though these things we teach may have been taught all the time in the church. But they're usually taught in settings where the men are with the women and children, meaning the tone from the teacher is not the tone that they hear. You cannot reach and disciple a man if you keep talking to him like he's a woman or a child. And our curriculum and our speakers and our teacher speak the language that men hear. And that's why it works. And, uh, and if you are interested in that, then just contact us at themanchurch.com, and we're happy to help you. Let's pray, and let's get started. Lord, thank you for today. Uh, thank you for the opportunity for us to dig into your word. May you speak to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. In your holy name we pray, amen. So the Revelation 14, what's happening here? Now, For we're gonna, I'm going to walk through this. Some of you that may be joining us for the first time, I don't want to confuse you, but you have to understand where we've been uh, so we can understand where we're going. So I love this statement. And it's true. Let's just be honest in this room and I know women watch this and listen to this around the world and that's fine. We're, you're you're welcome to be here with us. We're just studying the Bible. However, there are men in the room and as far as this in here it's men and men only. We as men love winners. We love winners. And uh, and and every man is drawn to winners. You want to hear from somebody if they're a winner, you want your team to be a winner, you want your business to be successful. We love a winner. Well, in, in Revelation 14 the opening verse is going to introduce us to the most triumphant group of men the world will ever know. I'm going to say that again. The most triumphant group of men that the world has or will ever know. Sounds like I've got your attention now. So we see individuals in Scripture that are triumphant, we certainly see that, and they are faithful, they're godly, they're uncompromising, they're committed men. Think You think about Joseph, you think about uh, Daniel, you think about the Apostle Paul. Individuals, yes, but never a group of men as triumphant as, as this group. Uh, never such a large group at one time. They will emerge from the worst holocaust in history, the tribulation, they will be battle-weary, but they will be triumphant. It will be like looking up and seeing not just one Daniel, but seeing 144,000 Daniels. Now, see, that, that's, that's something that is unprecedented. Uh, usually we hear you know, a small group here or there, somebody, but in this case it's going to be 144,000 that stay on the same page and they never waver, and they face hell on earth. And they don't waver. So uh, we are going to be introduced to them, uh, or we were introduced to them. The first time we heard about them was in our study in in the Revelation chapter 7. They've been uh, been through through a lot. They are sealed by God. But here's the thing I want you to understand. Even when you are sealed by God, even when we're under his protection, even when Jesus tells those of us that have uh, have been redeemed by him, He still tells us to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross. He still tells us the world will hate us. He still tells us there's a cost to our discipleship. He still tells us that we will face tribulation, but to be at peace, even in tribulation, to remember who we belong to. But this is what he didn't say. But you won't experience the tribulation. You won't suffer. It won't hurt. It won't be hard. He does not say that. So, so, so the suffering for them. Don't think because they were sealed they didn't experience it. That's not true. They were protected, no, no question. God was allowing a limit to what they could do. Think about it. In the in just this is a perfect example. Picture one hundred forty four thousand jobs, where Satan looked at the one hundred forty four thousand Hebrew evangelists and said, "So, so how far can I go with this?" Well, you can put them through everything, except you can't kill them. I will not allow you to kill them, but that didn't mean that they didn't suffer. It didn't mean that at all. So they are impressive when they stand, and you're going to see how impressive they are when you see where they get to stand. Uh, so, so anyway, they are they're they're like the remnant of of Malachi. Now this this is not uh, if you if you're not sure where Malachi is located, if you're learning how to get through the Bible and I certainly have had to learn all this, go to Matthew where the New Testament starts and then flip back into the Old Testament and you're there. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Okay, So, so Malachi talks about this in chapter 3, 16 and 17. Chapter 3, 16 and 17, the book of remembrance. Listen to this. And, um, and, and it says that um, uh, that in, in 16 and 17 in, in Malachi... Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before them of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I will, ma- when I will make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. He, he is talking about the remnant of the 144,000. They will be protected and they will be recognized. So God has always throughout history, God has always protected a remnant. Uh, I remember one time I was actually told by someone when we were laying out the strategy, uh, and, um, I had to kindly and gently and lovingly disagree with my brother, uh, who did not like me using the word remnant. And, uh, Says, so you know, I think you may be kind of hurting us a little bit. I think some people take offense when you say that those that will go through this strategy, those who will not waver, those who will be growing in the men's ministry strategy, that, uh, that there is a remnant that is coming out of this and that God told you there will be a remnant of men. I think that you're making people who are not participating feel like that they are somehow lesser in the church. I said I didn't come up with a remnant. That's that's not my thing. That that was God's thing. God said it is a remnant. I'm, I can't apologize for what God said. The fact of the matter is, if you've got a church that has a hundred men in it, the fact of the matter is, most of them will not follow Jesus. It'll be a remnant. Have you ever tried to go pitch somebody on a strategy that will not grow? That that they don't even know. They can't believe you're saying it. I said, now, whatever number of men you start out with, that's not what you'll finish with. Oh, so we'll have more. I said, no, you'll probably have less. But, boy, the ones that that, that are still there. Ooh. I remember this when I was doing this at uh, at, where we started at at, uh, my church at Shades Mountain Baptist Church. I think our first man church, we had 600 men. At the last one we had before God had uh, had uh, uh, the pastor retire and then, uh, of course, I was planning on that God was calling me to the next thing and love the church. And that's where we raised our It's where I was discipled, where we started this strategy. And I think we we're at 220, 223, something like that. But I remember when the number dropped down and we were about in year two. And I was telling the man that I was serving with, I said, today, I want you to ask how many men at this man church service are involved in small groups. And he said, why, you, you want to make the guys who are not involved in the small groups feel bad? I said, no, I'll take that, but that's not my intention. I said, that's a nice little byproduct. I really hadn't thought about that. I said, but I said, I want you to show that God's confirmed the strategy that he's given us right out of the word of God. So we stand up. I think the number was 223, something like that. And he said, hey, I want you guys to stand up in here who have been involved in one of our small groups. 221 men stood up. And I said, the ones who didn't get in the small groups? They're gone. They faded away. Now, I'm not saying that they're going to hell. I don't know what their situation is, but they did not stick in the strategy because they wouldn't do the small groups. They just wanted to go somewhere to an event every now and then, but then they got to where they just didn't see that of any value. So the curriculum in the small groups, it is key, and this is the same thing that God has been saying throughout Scripture, I always call a remnant most people do not devoutly follow jesus most people don't jesus said this in matthew 7 wide and easy is the road that leads to destruction and that's the road most people are on and we have to ask our questions which one are we on and now so if he if he gave us some if he gave us some adjectives okay he actually did so the wide road that leads to destruction jesus uses these this word easy it's wide, which means it's easy to maneuver. It doesn't cost you. Anybody can get a car down it if you look at it like a road. you know? And he said, so easy and wide is destruction. And then he said, and that's where most people are. That's his words. Those aren't mine. Many. And then he said, but my, my guys are my women. The, the followers of Christ, they'll actually not even be on a wide road. They'll actually enter a narrow gate. You ever tried to get your vehicle through a gate versus a big wide road? They're going to come through a narrow gate. He said, and that way will be hard. Those are Jesus' words. And he said, and only a few will do it, but it leads to life. So Jesus Christ, not Rick Burgess. So if it hurts your feelings, then you have to take that up with Jesus. I didn't come up with this. Jesus said that most people are on a wide road that doesn't cost them anything. They, They didn't cost them their sin. It didn't cost them... Uh, their recreation, it didn't cost them vacations, it didn't cost them anything. But unfortunately, though that road is wide and easy and at times more enjoyable for the moment, it's leading to death and destruction. So if your life is easy and your life hasn't cost you anything, you're probably on the wrong road. Now, don't go looking for trouble. I'm just saying trouble should have come, though, because of your devotion to Jesus. So which road are you on? Is the road you're on, is it narrow? Does it cost you your sin? Is it hard because you still live in a a, a sinful world and you still have a a flesh that you have to fight? Does anybody not like you because of your devotion for Jesus? Has it cost you anything? Jesus says, I don't know what it'll cost you individually. It'll cost you different things, but every one of you, it'll cost you your sin. That it will cost you. And I want to tell you something. Difficulty. I was taught to be tough. I don't like to look for it. That part I can deal with, to be honest with you, the most difficult thing for me to get right with Jesus was my sin because I loved sin. And for too long I loved it more than I loved him. And giving that up was difficult. And it hasn't given me an easier life, but it sure has given me a better life. There's relationships that I could fix today if I would just reject Jesus and say, do whatever you want. Let's just all be friends and all get along. I could solve it like that. And that'd be easier. Would it be wrong? So the 144,000 will not be the only ones that will be redeemed during the tribulation because many of those people will be martyred. The key is they come through it without dying. So they're not the only ones that don't reject Jesus, but the ones who, who a lot of them won't reject Jesus and they're killed immediately. The 144,000, they all come through it alive, and that's what makes them special. They survive, and that makes them unique. These Jewish evangelists will stand with Christ when he returns in triumph on Mount Zion. They'll be with him. Can you imagine standing there with him? So let, let me tell you where we are because I know this got confusing on twelve up to fourteen. Remember, 12 through 14 was was an interlude, and 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 the judgments are in order from chapter 6 to 11. But remember, we told you 12 and 13, we got out of chronological order. Does everybody remember that? We're about to get back in it. we were been out of chron- chronological order. We went back and looked at these events, but we looked at it from the view of who Satan is. So we're about to leave all that and get back to the chronological timeline. Is everybody with me? Okay. So... Uh, We look back; uh, the the trumpet judgments don't start to fifteen, so we're not there yet. This is something in between that that we're seeing. Okay, fourteen though will return us to the proper timeline on what God's doing, and there's three visions that give a general preview of the judgments yet to come that culminate in Christ's return. All right, now fourteen, which I think you all be happy about. Is going to be a bright contrast to the darkness of 13 and the darkness of 12. 14 is going to focus on the Lamb. It's going to focus on angels. It's going to focus on redeemed saints, genuine worship, and those that are sealed by God. So listen to the contrast. Just 13 that we just finished, it had falsehood, wickedness, corruption, blasphemy. 14 will have truth, righteousness, purity, and praise. Somebody say amen. So uh, so this is significant uh, because uh, this passage is going to give us something because you think, what is the significant in prophecy of this? Why would God show us this? I just talked to a brother a minute ago, and you all know this too. What do we need to learn, brothers and sisters that are watching and listening? What do we need to learn? you got to start paying attention to what God's teaching. Everything we go through, if you're redeemed, God is teaching. Now, if you're not redeemed, then... Everything going on in your life may be chaos. But if you're redeemed and you belong to Jesus, there's nothing you're going through that God isn't teaching in. And we've got to learn to say, what are you teaching? So this teaches us something, but what is it? Why why can't we get on to the trumpets and let's get on to, to Christ? Why are we stopping here and why does John need to see this? And I'll tell you why. Because this is important because it gives us practical principles, how we live right now triumphant Christian lives right now. We're going to see what it looks like to live a triumphant life, and we're going to apply it to our lives. So in the first five verses, we're only going to do one through five. We're going to look at, at seven features that will describe the 144,000. Rick, why do I need to know about the 144,000? Because they show you an example. We're looking to them and go, All right, we, what can we learn from them? Number one, you know what you can learn? You can learn power. The Christian life should be powerful. We have power. We're, we're under the authority of Christ. And there's power. His Holy Spirit dwells in us. And so it starts out in verse 1. And there's a lot to talk about in verse 1 of chapter 14. And I love this first line. Then I looked and behold. Every time you see that, that's John saying, man, what I saw is dramatic. He didn't just say, then I looked up and let me tell you what's next. He said, then I looked and behold. That's a big statement. It'd be like me saying, I was doing this and then all of a sudden behold. And I looked in the sky and you you go, oh, that that must have been something big. It is big. On Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Now, who's the Lamb? Jesus. And with him, look at this place that they get. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name, written on their foreheads. So the, the what, what do you think it was after all this that we've been through in, in 12 and 13? It's been a while since John has seen who? Jesus. Jesus was, he's like, and behold, there's the lamb. I see the lamb again. I bet he's thinking, thank goodness I see the lamb again. I've been seeing some really horrible things. There's the lamb. There's my hope. There he is. So he he have you ever had Satan try to convince you? I mean, he's abandoned you. You ever had that happen? Where's God now? I remember hearing that so clear. Don't forget what we believe the adversary. What I tell you last week is his number one weapon, deception. Now listen, this is important. It's important. Satan will, those of us that have moved on, so God is sovereign, Rick. He is. You said that things are not out of control, that they're under his control. Absolutely. So God's sovereign? Yes. God's in control, Rick? Yes. Well, look what he's done to you. I thought you said he loved you. Well, I'll tell you one thing. If he's in control of this, he's the one that did it to you. He'll take everything you believe and use it against you. this doesn't look real loving to me. He He didn't keep that from happening to you. You still think he's in control? I do. Well, then he did it to you. I wouldn't have done that to you. Of course, that's a lie. All he wants to do is kill us and destroy us. But he makes you doubt that what God is doing is for your own good. He wants you to think what's happening to you is because God doesn't love you. Well, uh, you're, you're going to see that John sees that the Lamb is standing on Mount Zion. If you would like to make uh, a couple of notes here to go look at the significance of Zion, Mount Zion, Psalm 2, 6-9, Psalm 48, and I'll tell you what it says there uh, in verse 2. It says that Zion is always shown as beautiful in ele- elevation, the joy of the whole earth, the psalmist says about Mount Zion. Isaiah 24, 23 says, The Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before the elders. Who Who's part of all this? 24 elders, right? The fulfillment of those predictions. Think about Isaiah. Isaiah, everything he was saying to us, John sees it being fulfilled. How do you think that is? So, uh, John Phillips, you know, he's one of the commentaries that I use. Uh, when you think about uh, this 144,000, uh, and, and he, he, he wrote this, and I went and found it. He says, talking about the 144,000, that they have been completely loyal to the lamb, no matter what the cost. Are we willing to be completely, completely loyal to the lamb, no matter what it costs us? Now, don't just say it. Think about it. No matter what it costs you. What if it costs you family? What if it cost you your job? What if it cost you your life? What if it cost you friendships? What if it cost you money? They allow no rivals, this is John Phillips, no refusals, no restraint to mar their dedication to him. Man. Does he need someone to stand upon the steps of the Vatican and cry out against the marriage of Christians to the beast? Are they are they are one hundred and forty four thousand ready to go? Does the Lord need someone uh, to, to beard the beast at, at some high function of state and roundly denounce him? Does he need people to to, to stand up for his policy, his, his truth to mark? and call out those that are lining themselves with Satan? He said, they are 144,000 eager to go. Does the lamb need evangelists to proclaim to the untold millions the gospel of the coming kingdom of God, to climb the highest Himalayas, to cross the desert sands, to blaze evangelistic trails through steaming jungles, or to mush huskies across the wide Arctic waste? They are the 144,000 ready to go. And though the beast, Gestapo, dog their footsteps and wreak upon their converts his direst vengeance, yet on they go, undaunted, undeterred. That was the very spirit of their consecration as they followed the Lamb wherever he led them on earth, and their reward is in kind. Of course they're standing with him because they earned it. They did whatever he told them to do. What is a disciple? You want me to give you a Calhoun County definition of a disciple? That's someone that says whatever Jesus says to say and goes wherever he says to go and does whatever he says to do. That's it. Are you a disciple? Are you still hanging around that, I'm a believer? Which kind of gets you up to the same level of of Satan because he is too. Do you reject the lordship of Jesus like Satan does? Or do you embrace it and say, Lord, wherever you send me, wherever, whatever you want to do, I'll do. I'll say what you tell me to say. I'll go where you tell me to go. I'll do what you tell me to do. Or do you go and then you, put, then you say, but I have a little caveat at the end, unless it's difficult, anything easy you want me to do, I'll do. Don't let me be sacrificial in any of this. And I need to be home by dinner, just so you know. And, I, there, and there's a few things that I would rather you not inconvenience. Instead of me you know, going on the vacation where I want to go, don't make me use my vacation days for some third-world country to go tell people about Jesus. I'll tell people about Jesus at the resort that I'm going to, and it is not up for debate. I will not give you that trip. I will not take that money, and I will not go to some desolate place where i got to lay in some hot room or, and not have air conditioning. And, I, and go go tell people about Jesus. That I won't do. I'll try to remember, if I don't forget, when I'm in the lap of luxury, to tell some of the people serving me there about Jesus. And I'm sure that happens all the time. He, he already knows, so go ahead and confess where you're struggling. And I have those struggles. You're, you're, it's not unique. So... The 144,000 have the lamb's name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Now, isn't it interesting that we we, we know, and when this was put on them, it was back at Revelation 7-3, that's when they received the mark on their forehead, but their mark was the name of the lamb and the name of the father, and the beast marked his people. The ones that were marked by God is in contrast to those that were marked by the beast, because how about this? They will enter the millennial kingdom as living men. Now, a lot of people have died that will get to the millennial kingdom, but not these guys. They go in living because they were never killed. What a reward. They, uh, you know, it will will be those that... uh, that did not compromise. Now, all the redeemed will be there. But Isaiah 65, 23 says this, tells us children will be born. Not all will believe. The 144,000 will continue, believe this or not, they're going to continue, and you'll see it. They will continue the millennial reign, and they will continue to go and evangelize. because. But I know you don't want to hear this, And those of you that may not know this, it's true. Some of you already know a little bit about the Revelation. But by the time we get to chapter 20, you're not going to believe that even in the millennial reign, enough unregenerated people begin to appear that by the end of it, there's still people that side with Satan and try to lead a worldwide rebellion against Christ again. Just like we've always done. Now, who are these people? Since it's only the redeemed and the 144,000, most commentators believe these will be the children that are born during this time, because when they're born, they haven't, they haven't been redeemed yet. And that those children, will a lot of them will become rebellious and they'll side with Satan, not Christ. Can you believe that? Well, before you get too high and mighty about that, I'm speaking to me too, are you all in on Jesus' reign on your life or do you find yourself rebelling against it? Careful. All they're doing is saying, I don't like the way you rule. Are you saying that? Because you're supposed to be under his lordship right now. Do you say you like the way he rules, or you say I'd rather you rule? Let me give another version of your rule. I reject this about your rule. I reject that about your rule. It's the message I just gave. And some of you heard me give it before at the uh, Great Iron Conference this past weekend. We had like it was hundreds of men that stood up and repented. Praise God. Like Billy Sunday said, how many were that repented, Rick? I mean, I I can give you this number, but we'll see. Because the fruit will be in their life. It might have been emotional for some of them. Others, I think, truly repented. We'll see. But the message was us picking a version of Jesus that we like better than the actual Jesus. When Barabbas is brought out in front of these people, Uh, Josephus and others said that really his full name was Jesus Barabbas. And that's why Pilate says, you want Jesus Barabbas or you want Jesus who says he's the Christ? And you know what they said? Give us Barabbas. We like him better. We reject Jesus who is the Christ. And every time we pick sin over what Jesus says, we say, I'd rather have Barabbas. So it should not shock us that after Jesus has ruled perfectly for a thousand years, that over that thousand years, some people have been raised up and says, Mama, Daddy, I don't like him. I don't really like the way he does things. Lucifer has come to us, and he says we could lead a rebellion against him, and we get to do it the way we want to do it, and I'm in. And enough of them get together, Now it's pathetic how it turns out. I hate to give away the ending. It, it's, calling it a battle is a bit of a stretch. Because Jesus kills them real quick. It doesn't take long. But they do mount with Satan against him like a bunch of idiots. So I actually understand this rebellion. I've had many people going, I just can't understand that. They can go a thousand years under Jesus and rebel against him. I can't. I've been redeemed by Jesus, and at times I still rebel against him. And he's supposed to be already ruling in my life. So, yeah, that's believable to me. Isaiah 60, verse 3, Zechariah, chapter 8, 23, speak to the salvations that will take place during the millennium. The redeemed will be protected. They have his power. But there's some who still have to choose, and these 144 evangelists will still be trying to reach them. And, And this is prophecy. Isaiah 60, write it down. Verse 3, Zechariah eight you'll see there's people that are redeemed during the millennial reign, and then there's people that, are, that reject him. Psalms 9, 5 through 16, and John 6, 37, listen to what Jesus said, because the thing that I want you to understand, only the people, the only people that are siding with Satan and the only people that are sent into eternal hell with Satan are people who have never been redeemed. Do not think that there's people that are redeemed that are going to fall away. That's not true. Because we see that if you if you look at Psalms nine five through sixteen, you can read about that, but John sums this up, Jesus talking, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. John ten, twenty-eight and twenty-nine. Jesus says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians 1, 6, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And you know, when you think about this, and I heard Brian Gunn talk about this, um, who spoke to our men at the, our prayer breakfast at my home church as part of our man church curriculum, it was a great, I love this. That When we see this whole discussion, I know we. I'm not going to get into all the theologies and whatever of predestiny, but one thing I know is true in Romans chapter 8, it clearly says that those of us that have been redeemed because of the power of Christ, it's why this new devotional we just put out, Transformed. You know, embracing the death of self and the power of God, it clearly tells us that Jesus is so powerful, if we have truly been redeemed by Jesus, it is predestined that we will become like him. Because of why? Because of Jesus. And when you're going through difficulty, and I love this, Brian said this, it was a great line. When we're going through difficulty and we're suffering, we're being refined, you know what God's saying? He doesn't look enough like my son yet. I'm getting him there. No, he doesn't look enough like him yet. I love that. It's not fun, but I understand it. Jude talks about this in verse 24. He said, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Look at that. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Rick, why have I not been transformed? I'll do it this way because I don't like to say you because that doesn't come across. Hey, Lord, why have I not been completely transformed yet? And you know what Jude just told me the Bible tells me? You're the problem. I'm not the problem, God. God's not the problem. He said, I, I have the power to transform you completely. So if you're not being transformed by me, you're the problem. Rick, you're the problem. I'm not the problem. Like I told you, I'm, I'm feeling more and more led that the next uh, resource I'm going to put out, the title of it is going to be, I Am the Problem. James talks about this. Stop blaming Satan for things you're doing. It's just your sinful flesh while you do the things you do. You're blaming a lot of things on Satan that he's not doing. You're doing it. And so Jude is saying, look, the power is there. Access the power to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. Jesus presents us fully righteous, not partially righteous. He transforms us. It's regeneration. It's a new birth. And if you don't see the new birth in your life, you're the problem. He's not the problem because it's there. So the first thing we learn from these 144,000 is power. The next thing we're going to learn, praise. Look at verses 2 through 3. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and the sound of loud thunder, the voice I heard was like the sound of a harpist playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song, underline that, before the throne and before the four living creatures, their back, and before the elders, their back. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Wow. So the voice from heaven, not the first time or the last that we hear these terms of God's voice being water, thunder. Ezekiel 43.2 says God's voice is like many waters. Um, and, of course, you know, this song, the singing of the song, we saw back in Revelation 5, 9 and 10. We saw the four creatures and we saw the elders singing it. But it says now they're going to sing a new song. The voice uh, also that he's hearing is, is, is musical. It, it sounds like harps. Why harps? Write this down. Throughout Scripture, When you see harps being used as an analogy, it always equals joy. It always equals joy. This points to the celebration. The new song is a song of redemption. The angels, though they're not redeemed, they still join in uh, with the Old Testament saints, the raptured church, the redeemed tribulation martyrs, uh, and praising God for what? Salvation. Even the angels saying this salvation thing is something we're singing about. They don't quite understand it, and they they find they're very intrigued with us in this salvation plan. Of course, the demons who went against them, they're furious because they weren't offering salvation. Satan wasn't offered salvation. So there is a, a song of praise because God's redemptive work is culminating in what? The return of Jesus Christ. It's here. They're celebrating. It's here. It's all coming together now no one could learn it except the 144 thousand. what in the world is this? well the unredeemed can't sing the song of redemption and that's why this song is restricted to the 144, thousand Now Henry Morris you know who's not afraid to take this kind of thing on uh, and, and this this commentary I was reading from Henry And and I'm talking about this new song and talking about what might be going on here. Um, And this is a possible explanation. He said, although the words of the song of the 144,000 are not recorded, it surely dwells in part at least on the great truth that they had been redeemed from the earth. And that's that's in here. Although in one sense, all saved people have been redeemed from the earth. And that's the part I struggled with. That's why I'm glad Henry helped me. He said, these could know the meaning... of of such a theme in a more profound way than others. Why? They had been saved after the rapture at the time in history when man's greatest persecutions and God's greatest judgments were on the earth. It was such a time that they, like Noah in Genesis 6-8, had found grace in the eyes of the Lord and had been separated from all that dwell upon the earth. That was in Revelation 13-8 when we went through that. Not only had they been redeemed spiritually, I love this, he said, They have been redeemed from the very curse that was on earth, being protected from pain and death by the guarding seal that God placed on them. You know what they're saying? Look, we all been through it, but ain't nothing like these guys have been through it. So they get they go over and they get a song that says, We can sing with a tone that the rest of you can't, because we were taken through the tribulation and we were evangelizing during the worst time on earth, and we have been brought through it by the grace of God. We're singing in a way. Do, do, do you know you said this? You know. I, I think some of you heard me say this before. I remember so vividly my wonderful, godly wife. We were listening to a young, aspiring pastor, and he was and is great, and he was doing great. But I remember Sherry nudged me and leaned over and whispered and says, I can't wait to hear this guy after he suffers. He'll have a whole new tone. And listen how good he is, but he's going to be great after God allows him to suffer. There's a tone that comes with suffering that you cannot get any other way. Those who suffer and have been brought through it seem to love Christ in a way that's a little bit different than those who had an easier ride. So that's what this is likely talking about. I think Henry makes a good point. Again, he's not saying that you know God told him that, and he just said that that makes sense to me. Uh, the bottom line: they'd been through hell on earth, and so what song uh, you know if uh, that are they singing? It, it, it's going to let us know later, uh, but you're going to see later that. The, um, that they are singing from um, from Psalms 15, the song of Moses. Uh, it, it, it's a mark of, of triumphant living and constant praise of God. Uh, their ordeal is over. Joy is the proper outflow at the heart uh, that trusts in God's sovereign power. If you have trusted in him and he has brought you through something, uncontrollably the result of that experience is joy. Thank you. Thank you. And as Jesus said about the Rick Burgesses of the world, he said, you know, I know people love me that paid uh, a debt for them that might have been $100. But for those that I paid a debt of hundreds of thousands of dollars, they just seem to really love me. Because they have no delusion that they didn't need my grace. They know how bad they were. And they're so thankful that I paid the debt that they couldn't pay. The larger the debt, the more thankful you are. So I'm very, very thankful. You also find this, you want some other bo- verses to look at this. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Philippians 4, verse 4. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. James 1, And our brother Peter talks about it in 1 Peter four thirteen. The proper flow. From those who trust in God's sovereign power is joy. What else do we see? Verse 14a. I'm sorry, chapter 14, verse 4a. The next thing we see, we've seen power. We've seen praise. The next is purity. Look at 4. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Wow. The 144,000 have kept themselves sexually pure. Now, why do you think that's mentioned? Why do you think God's making that point? What do you think the earth was like sexually during this horrific time of hell on earth? Every kind of fornication, porn, debauchery sexually we could even remotely even imagine is going on on earth. It is complete, utter... Sexual rebellion of every kind. And they do not defile themselves with it. Anybody looked around where we live right now? Now it's it's, 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 not, it's going to be worse than the tribulation. I'm not trying to say that it's not. You get to sexual perversion, we, we we're in a pretty rough conference right now. I mean, everywhere you look, it is obsession with sexual perversion. Total obsession with it. Everything is about sex right now. And and not pure intimacy between husbands and wives and the authority of God. Not that. Everything but that. And by the way, that's one of those things that people don't like about Jesus' reign. I have to delay gratifying myself until I'm married and with one person. I gotta tell you, I don't know if I like your authority think i'd rather have barabbas think i'd rather have satan because he said i can be sexually intimate anytime i want to i can watch porn i can gratify myself i can be a fornicator i can be an adulterer either physically or in my mind he didn't care i mean you created this why are you telling us that we got away why are you giving us all these all these boundaries well because boundaries are love if any of you in here have children, you know what I mean. The boundaries you set for them. You're not doing that to be mean. You're doing that because you're trying to protect them for the bad things that happen if they don't understand boundaries. And here's this one hundred and forty four thousand, and it's all around them. And and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna lay this down and just say it as straight as I can say it. And we see it here too. And if this isn't going on, you need to correct it. I had to correct it. Sexual purity is essential to a triumphant Christian life. It is essential. If you don't have that, you will not have a triumphant Christian life. If you're a sexual deviant outside of God's design for intimacy and sex, you'll never live a triumphant Christian life. It'll never happen it'll trip you up every time you turn. That's It's one of the few things in the Bible that God inspired all those that were teaching us. Just run from this. You know, when you see a lot of things, we're taught how to maneuver around it, how to deal with it, how to live with it. We get down to sexual immorality. Suddenly, Timothy's letter from Paul just gets real simple. Flee from this. Don't go there. I talked with one of my sons about that this week who praise God, has kept himself sexually pure for his upcoming marriage. And I said, how did you accomplish this? He said, I made the decision I wouldn't do it long before I ever had uh, dealt with it. I made the decision I'd do it when I was a little boy, before I ever went through puberty. I'd already decided that I would adhere to God's standard because because of my love for him. So when I got there and my body started feeling different, I had already made the decision. And he's even talking about this in the church. He said, trying to deal with teenagers on sexual purity is too late. He said, we need younger people like me talking to them, and then I need to be being discipled by an older man who's teaching me how to teach them. And I said, you're 100% right. He said, you start trying to talk to somebody, especially a male, after he's already gone through puberty, you're chasing now. They need to know before it ever gets here what God said about it and why. And uh, so this is talked about. I gave you the verses about that. Second uh, Timothy two twenty-two, I think, or twenty-three. I can't read my writing uh, about fleeing from sexual morality. First Thessalonians four three talks about it. First Corinthians six thirteen, and then that list that Paul gets when he said these are the people that will not inherit the kingdom of God. What's the first p- group he gives us to the church at Corinth? The sexual immoral. That's the first group he mentions. You see how they, it, 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 it's always a problem. And you know why? He goes on to tell us. He said all the other sins happen outside the body, but sexual sin happens to the body. And it's done with the body, which is the temple of the Lord. And when you invite Christ into your life and then you join him with a prostitute and you join him with porn and you join him to adultery, that's a whole different thing. So just run from it. What's the next thing we see in this? We've seen, we've seen power. We've seen praise. We've seen purity. The next one, partisanship. Look at, look, at, look at the rest of four. It is those who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. It is those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. So is this song for just anybody? No. Don't you love how Satan has convinced us to think the worst thing we could ever do is discriminate? Now, it is true that discriminating against people just because you don't like their skin color or you just don't like them is sinful. But I want you all to know something. God discriminates. There's proper discrimination. I shouldn't be with these people. I can't do what y'all are doing. I'm not going to be at that party. I can't work at this place. I can't do that commercial. I can't go along with that. And you know what what we're hearing right here? John says, it is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. So it's partisan. The one who follows the Lamb wherever he goes. Luke 9, 23, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. Wherever I go. First John 2, 4-6 through 6, Anyone who says they know him, but they do not obey him, is a liar, and the truth is not uh, in him. Anyone who says that they know him are to walk in the same way in which he walks. They follow him wherever he goes. And if you don't, you're not them. It's partisan. And that's clear. So we know that we've seen that There's the power of a triumphant Christian life. There is the power that goes along with the purity, which goes along with the praise, and now goes along with partisanship, meaning you don't just do anything with anybody, anytime, anywhere. You only want to be with those that are following the Lamb wherever He goes. Do we want to evangelize people? Yes. Yes, of course. Do we bring them, the unredeemed, into our inner circle where they have influence over us? No. No! Inside our inner circle should be followers of the Lamb like we are, either further along than we are, or somebody we're discipling, or somebody who's discipling us. Anybody who's lost or rejects Christ and does not follow the Lamb, they can be out here on the outer circle of your life as you minister to them, but they better not be on the inner circle. you got to be partisan, just like the Lamb of God is partisan. Then the next thing we see what is purpose the last part of 4. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. They have been purchased from among men and are the first fruits to God and the lamb. First fruits these men in the old testament if you remember first fruits mean you brought those to God the first fruits that were harvested were sacrificed to God. And, and what he's saying now is these redeemed people have been brought in as the first fruits. They're the first fruits of what? Those who are in service to me. That's your purpose. I've, I've redeemed you so you can serve me. I've redeemed you so you can evangelize. I've redeemed you for a purpose, not just so you won't go to hell. It's more than that. When I redeem you, then, then you go do what I said. You be a disciple and you make disciples. You were fruits to me. You are sacrificed for me for what? Service. That's the purpose in a triumphant Christian life. The, their purpose in the tribulation was what? The 144,000. To serve the Lord. By proclaiming the gospel to the laws, the, the, those that were perishing, they were there to try to bring to repentance, they represented the first of many that would be saved, even in the tribulation. Now, now think about it. I'm, I'm one of one hundred forty-four thousand. I was a Hebrew. I rejected you. I've been redeemed. Now get me out of here. No. Get us out of here. No. Well, you redeemed us. That's right. Now go redeem other people. We take us out of here. Do you know why you in this room right now are not dead? You've got work to do. I don't care how old you are. Don't you phone it in and prop your feet up on the porch and sit there and die. Keep working. There's still more for you to do for the very reason you're not dead. And he has not come back. So you work. And you keep up doing his work. And try to minimize stuff in your life that doesn't mean anything. And concentrate on things that have eternal value. I've gotten to the point that if it didn't have eternal value, I struggle to even care. If I have free time, I want to be in the Word. I want to be preparing the next thing. I want to be going to do the next thing. You know what I've done when my wife went to Israel and I left me with all this free time? I just started booking more man churches. Because, see, I don't want to neglect her. But if she's gone and I'm not leaving her at home, I'm gone. The guys in Prattville uh, on a Monday night, they're like, you know, hey, man, I appreciate you coming here. I said, I'm not coming here because I'm a good person. I'm not that good a person. I don't want to be in Prattville on Monday night. My wife's gone. I could be at home watching uh, uh, college baseball. I'm here because God told me to be here. I'm not that good a person. So uh, it's supernatural that I'm here because I wouldn't be here any other way. You think I want to go to Lake Mississippi Sunday night? I don't. Has is God taking me there? Yes. So does that bring me joy? Absolutely. I wish it's because I cared about those people so much. No, it's because I love Him, and I know that He's got the He He's got what they need. So I'm gonna go tell Him because that's what I needed. Purpose, purpose. They exemplify the purpose, decisiveness, dedication, and clarity of life goals. They mark triumphant Christians. Look at Romans 12, 1, 2 Also, there is precision. Look at the end of, end, of, end of 5a. There's precision. In their mouth, in their mouth there was no lie was found, for they are blameless. They are on the move. There's not one lie found in their mouths. They will not propagate Satan's lies, but only the word of God. Zephaniah three thirteen. the remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will be deceitful. They will not have a deceitful tongue, and they'll, none of this will be found in their mouth. Followers of Christ speak truth in love, laying aside falsehoods, Ephesians 4. Hey, followers of Christ don't tell lies. Lies, that's the language of Satan. When we're lying, Jesus says we're speaking his language, Satan's language. And it says, these 144,000, they don't lie. There's no deceit on their tongue. They will not speak lies. They will only speak God's truth. The final thing, and we'll wrap up, is perfection. Look at 5B. They're blameless. They're blameless. Doesn't mean sinless. Understand that. That doesn't mean sinless. They will be sanctified, above reproach, leading godly lives before all who see them. They're called to holiness. They will lead holy lives and minister effectively for God during history's darkest hour. It will lead to the greatest spiritual awakening the world will ever see. And this is an example for all of us to follow. Just because you're not sinless doesn't mean you're not supposed to be blameless. We're supposed to be living lives of integrity where people look at us and say, I don't know that I believe this or not, but they do because of the way they live their life. So the 144,000 are examples, and they're in the future, but they're examples of how we are supposed to live as followers of Christ right now us pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the lesson. Thank you for the, the challenge that is before us. Thank you for the example of these 144,000 men. And Lord, thank you for reminding us they've been they were just simply called to the same thing you're already calling us to. We're not in the tribulation, but we are in a fallen creation and we are in a difficult time. May our light that is you shine in the darkness. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being with us.